You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. And maybe first thing is to say thanks to the speakers um, again. Indy Johar, Uncle Dave, uh, Jane Marhutton, and Votring Nia. They were a um, fantastic journey that we were just taken on. Um, I was going to say apologies from Uncle Dave, but he's here, so that's fantastic. That was my first note. Um, and I hope we're going to have a bit of a conversation. Um, before we start, I also want to acknowledge um, the people of the Wurundjeri Wurrung um, and the countries on which we stand and that this event is taking place and to really pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, it feels such an important thing to bear as a context in this conversation and it's come out really strongly. So um, I think the idea would be that rather than me completely lead this, it's a conversation. Um, and I'd be really glad if our uh, panel of speakers was as happy to ask each other questions as me, but of course I will kick this off. And if we have some time, I'll also be asking um, audience if they have anything um, at the end as well. So there's an opportunity for that. So perhaps nurture some of those. Um, the first thing I'd say is, my God, my job's quite hard. Um, we traveled some distance there. I feel that that was a series of um, amazing intersecting stories, uh, stories that really sort of talked about an expanded relationship of materials, maybe a reorientation of how we think about materials, um, in which there's a transition, really, a transition of values from extraction, perhaps, to stewardship and care. And that just came up repeatedly. So this. And I say a set of intersecting stories because the second thing I would say is that the scales that we just talked about were quite um, overwhelmingly different from a uh, scale of the infrastructural and the structural right through to the scale of um, the one-to-one -one and um, where Nia just took us in, in his practice. So, so I feel like that's a pretty broad um, uh, territory to try to navigate and um, so forgive me if we don't really... Get, get as far as we should. Um, I think the first thing I was going to say, um, so yeah, excuse my count red notes. Um, it feels that one of the tensions in this discussion is about those intersecting stories and scales. Um, Indy, you took us on a very strong sort of ending point, which was it's beyond materials and into a sort of structural repositioning or transition. Um, at the same time, we then had, so in, in a way, there's this sense of an intensely planetary and structural scale. And then um, Jane, for example, took us, as well as, as, well as Nia, took us on a, a sort of intensely local um, story of entanglements of materials and place. And I wonder, maybe it would be good to hear from all of you, really, about whether you think there's a conflict or a tension, let's say, in those scales. Um, 
or if you think there's actually a clue there. Maybe I'll start with Indy and work around. Uh, happy to. Um, I don't think it's a conflict. I actually think it's a transition in how we relate to the world. And what appears as a conflict is we have a conflict of how we, um, our relationship with the world, our relationship with self, is being constructed in an old world view, which is now in conflict with reality. And I think that's the transition. It's not a conflict. It's, it's a pathway for us reimagining re our relationships with those, with, with the worldview. And I think that's, I think it's an extraordinary bright moment. It's a kind of as, as extraordinary as it could be because I think it will transform everything around us in ways that we can't imagine. So I, I don't see, perceive it as a conflict. I perceive it as a transition. And I think it's a human transition. It's a transition of how we imagine ourselves and our relationships with the world and our social imaginaries, all the things I was talking about, employment contracts, all these things are contracts of control, contracts of extraction. I think it's a deeper reimagination of all those things. And I think that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to liberate ourselves and liberate ourselves with the planet in a different way. Thank you. Yep, I got to agree that conflict is something that uh, humanity does its best to avoid. But in the in the in the thought processes of trying to avoid conflict, that it becomes almost inevitable that there will be conflict. In what we've spoken about today, and delving back into the uh, the past. Conflict arises by not understanding our, our environment that exists and imposing a built environment upon it. The conflict begins by not recognising in the early stages of the impact that these two, although they're meant to work in harmony, actually work together. I think that you pointed out very clearly that this has been happening for a long time and we've been avoiding the conflict that we have now, that we are now facing. But it is not all doom and gloom because there are lessons in our past of ecological systems and the recovery processes that, given the right encouragement, can happen without, uh, what should I say, monetary, uh, physical and spiritual punishments. But the longer we keep trying to put it off and, and hope that it's not going to happen, the more inevitable it will. And when it inevitably does happen, it's worse than what we could ever predict. And I think that's a message that came through to me in that discussion, that unless we do something in small incremental, sorry, massive incremental changes we need now, if we listen to the advice that we were given back in the, uh, from the 1970s, from my experience of understanding that the climate crisis was coming, and this was known by my elders, and many of them have passed away now, and none of them were scientists, and none of them actually did become academics, but they predicted that this was coming, but nobody wanted to listen. But if they had have listened, and to the few people who were aware of these situations, and the minimal amount of, of time, which means less conflict, that we needed to spend then would not lead us to the pre presumed conflict that is coming. Those little bits we had to start long ago when we had the opportunity, we have missed. And so therefore it can become a conflict. But unless we've recognised those mistakes over the last 50 years, 
we won't be able to move forward without conflict. I wondered if Jane is there. She's gone from my screen. Oh, there she is. Jane, any, any thoughts? I mean, your stories about a material which is very precise sort of took us all in, into a whole, let's say, cultural system of extraction to production. Um, is there, in, in telling that story, trying to, let's say, resolve that in the future, are there any clues so how these scales might synthesize, I guess? or be resolved? Yeah, I think, I think for me that project is very much about, um, about these scales all at once, or like the necessity, I think, to, and I feel like, first of all, because I'm joining live for the first moment here, I just want to say thanks, everybody. It's been in, so inspiring so far. I'm so excited about the discussions and all the ideas that are being shared. Um, but in terms of this question on scale, I think, um, yeah, it's very interesting to be at a moment where we're deeply thinking about kind of local production or the need to the need to really understand what, you know, our relationships are to where we are, but also being absolutely, you know, part of this, I think as was talked about a kind of planetary citizenship and and understanding the 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 kind of force of global organizing in terms of how we're going to deal with the with the you know, current state of affairs. So I guess I think I don't see a conflict. I see a kind of necessity for us to be thinking about both at once. Nia, you mentioned at the end there something which I thought was really, um, maybe goes to this question as well, which was this idea of bamboo as a systematic material. Um, do you think that the material as a new form of system is a really important part of how we resolve this or how we might deal with the materials in the future, new systems of materials? The material itself um, is... Uh, it needs some like detail or system for adaptation with the uh, kind of material. Uh, for example, bamboo, they need their own language and we need to create a system for, for them, of course. But um, what I mean is, uh, you, told, uh, you talk about the conflict and I would like to talk about that first. Because uh, as I say, tell you about the uh, wandering mind, if human beings like um, they can concentrate just about three to five seconds, just three to five seconds or even ten seconds, and then the some wandering mind happen, and then they we cannot see through every story because we need to. A wandering mind come and we need to do it again and then we need to start again we need to start again and then we can think really not um, deeply mm. of the thinking but the deeply of thinking is maybe we have to struggling with we need to make a lot of effort to think through something so that's why we have a lot of conflict inside conflict inside I had been working very hard, especially when I was in Japan, like 
14 hours, 16 hours uh, per day because they always require to have the meeting in the midnight. But, um, you know, with a lot of wandering mind and then with less of focus, so we write something like we think very, not deeply, but very, very little to write down a book without, and then now you can go to the bookstore, it huge amount of book there, but we don't know which one we, we should read. And then, I mean, I mean, some is waiting of time and energy and, 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 and a lot of conflict in your mind. That means we cannot, you know, read good about the context, about the material or about the mm, problem happen around. That's why the conflict happened inside us and then it conflict to outside. And even we deal with the... I, I don't think human beings can deal with, with the climate change or environment <laughs> problem <laughs> because the, 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 a lot of wandering mind, a lot of conflict inside, a lot of hope yeah. and even a lot of love also make them anxiety and cannot deal with, yeah. well with the, the environment, I think so. I, I think it's quite lovely that we've got a theme of materials and we're talking like about ethics and values and feelings. It feels like that's the common ground of, that, of the morning, in a way, is that uh, yeah, a transition to a different value system whether that's one that you know one that's more supporting mental health or our health systems or um, or other values is part of what's really important. Um, my my other thought about besides that commonality that came through really strongly, uh, I felt that the other commonality that came through every single person's talk was um, trees, and that's I don't mean that in a trite way. I felt that we got the scene set. Um, and it was a very good, in a way, a sort of um, a, a clue to this idea about re reorientation of values was this idea of the tree as an infrastructure or civic infrastructure that um, Indy talked about. And uh, I felt that it kept coming up in each of the presentations. Um, I just wonder, I don't have a question about that, I just felt that it was sort of, again, strangely present in, in all of the discussions, and I wondered if you'd respond to that, Indy, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, one of my reflections, even just listening to all of our talks, was there's a worry, actually, and I was thinking about this afterwards, there's a worry we treat trees like objects, and we sort of objectify them, whereas actually the brilliant walk that you took us on was the tree is not an isolated object, it's, a, it's in a web of life, and its decay creates the framework for uh, other species, insects, and complex biodiversities. So I think when we talk about the tree, I think the tree needs to be not the object, but a metaphor for a wider complex web of life relationships, mm -hmm. and how do you build that? Because there is a risk of turning the tree just into another object, mm -hmm. and actually, that's dead. I mean, a, a tree by itself is not life. It, it, the, the web of life, and I think um, 
Um, I, I, yeah, you're much more eloquent in talking about this, Dave. Uh, but I think it's really important that it, it doesn't become a symbol of ec ecology, but actually becomes the practice of eco ecological systems in a much deeper sense. And I think even the house that you did with the with the trees, but also the fish underneath, that's actually that aqua. Uh, aqua kind of forest relationship becomes really critical. So I think this is, mm. the tree is not the object. The uh, tree is a verb, not a noun. Yeah, it's exactly. And I think that um, sort of way of looking. Yeah, any other reflections? The tree, the tree is, uh, in our Aboriginal culture, is the most sacred object. When we talk about managing country, the one thing we are not allowed to damage is the trees um, because they are there for a long time. There are, of course, younger trees which can be harvested, but our ancient eucalypts, which have been around for you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred years, um, are actually quite revered in our society. And it's, but it's not only because they're ancient and they're a part of a system, they are also a learning tool. It's where our language comes from. And, by, and when we talk about meditation as well, um, finding that place... Um, it is a tree that I meditate under. And we have a particular tree for our particular mob. And uh, any time that I'm feeling some internal conflict, uh, some mental health problems, I'm very fortunate to have a little bit of land that I actually own and manage where I can move away from this rat race around us. And that's what I go looking for. I actually have a select half a dozen trees that are grouped together. So there's a family that is there. And we do think of trees as the parents that we live under. We are only the children that are living underneath those trees and that we can learn from. But I sit there and sometimes for 20 minutes, sometimes for three hours and four hours until I wait for those trees to give me the indicator of what I need to do next. And that's why I don't have as many internal conflicts as what I have. It's by understanding the role of a tree, but not a tree on its own, as you just mentioned, about what it supports, what it supports above it, what it supports within it, what it supports underneath it, and what it supports in its surrounds. And when you start to understand that philosophy, it all becomes much, much clearer. Nia, do you want to make any... Trees seem totally integral to the way that you work, nature, or plant plants as part of your architectural um, language. Yeah. For the situation like Ho Chi Minh City or uh, Hanoi, because uh, it's lacking of greenery, so we use the tree, like uh, reintroduce the greenery to the city because almost the city with concrete jungle. And of course, like he said, is for meditation, we would like to meditate under the tree. So tree is uh, play very big, uh, important role for, uh, for our living or even for my meditation. I meditated in the forest and the Buddha also encouraged us to meditate under the tree. And for our city, uh, like we have when I was a kid, we, it was weird when we heard about mental problem, like some suicide uh, in the developed country. But now we're facing with that problem because I think the lacking of the natural in the city. 
we live in the concrete box next to the concrete box next to the concrete box and air pollution that's why we need the tree we need a lot of bird coming the ecosystem for the city to to at least reduce the mental sickness of our uh, inhabitant in our city in Vietnam. And Jane, is there any, you, you have, one of your stories was about the, the trees and their production cycle and the US and Canada have a particularly uh, vivid history of logging and the extraction, the extraction of trees. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on yeah, I mean, I, I love the discussion and and the the starting point of that that the trees aren't trite. I think it's so it's so true. And um, I was thinking because I was looking at street trees. I think that is the that can be um, so much a situation where trees do become objects. I think we like probably everyone's been to so many so many cities where street trees are dead or they last for you know they they can stay alive for five or seven years. And that I think is absolutely an indication of, of, of thinking about them as objects. Um, but in the story that I was researching, I think um, it became much clearer that, that all of these themes of kind of the mutualities and inter interdependencies between people and trees just really came forward. So recognizing the fact that the fact that this huge canopy, like really, really um, healthy canopy comes from you know so many these generations of different people kind of tending them and caring for them um, and also recognizing how much um, people's like actual ability to breathe in it you know where they live or or you know heat or be comfortable and enjoy comes from this from this longevity of these trees and so yeah that that for me was very moving just to kind of recognize this back and forth, like the, 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 the back and forth of carbon dioxide and oxygen, essentially, like how, how people in trees are breathing together. Um, and I think I also found it very interesting to, to listen to the, you know, the way the city is thinking about street trees, where it used to be like, we're going to plant one species everywhere and we'll see, you know, see how they, how they, whether they live or not. Um, to now the city, like, obviously there's so many more species being planted and also there's a real, um, really kind of complex understanding of the different conditions within, you know, like, let's say within a small area, within a neighborhood that there are really, you know, kind of different ecological conditions. So rather than thinking that city is one thing, um, recognizing that there are so many different kind of, um, you know, relationships with other species and and moisture conditions and kind of micro microclimates i think that's very interesting as well to also recognize um that that e that that even a kind of seemingly inert urban space is also not an object you know that there that there's so much complexity of life everywhere yeah uh, so i found that yeah that the trees really bring that forward yeah and the, the other commonality besides trees was also land. I felt that land came up repeatedly in various forms. And I think um, it also went to your challenge, Indy, at the end of your presentation, which was this idea of a private ownership economy to a many-to-many -many economy. And um, I, I think the issue of land and land ownership was sort of structured right through your discussion. And we had a lot of, Uncle Dave also spoke, spoke about 
land as in country and different forms of ownership or treaties or, or relationships to land, which are completely, again, reorientations of, of our traditional. Um, have you got speculations on how we change our approach to land or how we practically, what practical ways could land value be disconnected from the real values that land has to us or country has to us? Anybody? Yeah. So I, I, um, a lot of the work that we're seeing is that, so for example, soil right, takes thousands of years to make thousands of years. The idea of ownership is the right to destroy. Ownership is fundamentally rooted in the right to destroy. And the question you have to ask yourself is who has the right to destroy soil? As an example. Mm. And, I, and I don't mean that to say, look, ownership is... To, what I'm trying to say is ownership as an idea was as an idea of building stewardship. It may have come to the end of its time when we start to think about new ways of being. And I think we can rhyme with the past where you didn't own the trees, you didn't own the land because it wasn't yours. It, you cohabited it with all sorts of other ecological systems. So who owns the liability, and this is really important, who owns the liability of CO2 release from failing soil? So if you own farms and you get carbon losses and carbon release, who owns that liability? So I think we often talk about things in static terms and discrete terms, but I think technology and capabilities and our understanding is starting to inform a new way of relating. And my point was that I think our governance mechanisms and our mechanisms of being in contract are fundamentally being reimagined to rhyme with learnings of First Nations and Indigenous Nations to build a new way of relating and stewarding the world. And that, I think, is a revolution, but it's not, it's a sort of, and in a way, it's a meeting of kind of capitalism in a systems world, and it's a meeting of that with indigenous thinkings of actually post-domination post and dominion theories of organizing. So I think we're starting to see a new way of being, and I think that is, that's extraordinary in its own sense. So I don't see, that's what goes back to my original point about conflict. I don't see this as conflict. I see this as a, just a greater understanding. An understanding of the tree is not an object. The understanding, our understanding of the value of trees, you know, as material values, a tree-lined street will reduce the temperature of that street by 12 degrees. That means that the maintenance of your roads is massively reduced because in summer you get massive destruction of your road tarmacking infrastructure. It means that the energy costs of maintaining that, uh, of all the housing is reduced. A tree-lined street in a city will increase the property value. A tree-lined street will reduce the flooding risk. A tree-lined street will increase the microbiome quality, which means that the health of humans is better. Mm. So when you start to see this, this is no longer ignorable. I think we're starting to live where we are conscious of these values, conscious of these effects, and thereby I think we can start to relate in different ways. And in that world, you can't optimize trees just for one effect. You have to recognize the interdependence for co-beneficiary realities in different formats. Now, I would say that's an... Well, everything I've described there is an intermediary position. 
I don't think it's where we have to go. I think it's a stepping stone from where we are to that position. I think then there's a more advanced position which I think allows us to genuinely live in a new type of um, treaty with the world in a different way. And I think that's what's coming at the end, end cycle. Mm. So I think it's a journey of transition. And mm. we're seeing practices like we're doing a house which is self-owning, where the house is not owned by one person. It's actually a relationship of cohabitation that can be built by perpetual bonds, which you can finance through a perpetual bond. So it still has money going through it, resources, but it's not rent-seeking systems. Um, the, material, the materials aren't owned, but actually are part of a loop of a material mm. trust. Mm. So the materials are maintained in a different way. Our theory of we, we are stewarding that house, but we're not owning it or renting from it. So I think these things are now possible mm. and we're seeing that happen in many many formats around around this thing so mm. I, I i sit in a kind of it's a new relationship with the world that's where i would argue. yeah yeah this question could go in many directions from an aboriginal perspective mm. of what is land tenure mm. um, as much as we are working through a treaty here in victoria um no one really knows how to approach it because how can they, if we didn't have a vote and we don't have a, a, a value on land because we don't have ownership in our, in our culture, how can the government then sell back the land because it's the, the government that's put a price on the value of land based on its economic return, but they only want to dispose of land that they can no longer get an economic return out of so it comes back to the question, as we said at the very start, where does your responsibility to the land begin and end? Are you only responsible when it's giving you an economic return? And as soon as it doesn't, then are you the one who's responsible, and they do this, to dispose of that land and then put a value on something that is useless to you, but you charge somebody else so that you get a return? It's a really convoluted circle that has been created which goes completely against our circular ecology that it's actually a reverse cycle that is never-ending depletion uh, of a material value of land that is only benefit to the person who no longer wants it. And I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself right there, but it is a problem that I have across every type of operation that I want to do on any part of my country, or indeed helping other Indigenous people on their country, that while we do get living land, given land back, it no longer has those cultural values, I won't say no longer has, but there's usually a condition on it that we're not allowed to sell it because we never owned it in the first place. So giving us land back, handing over the responsibility, but we actually inherit a legacy mm. of what is useless land into the future. And I'm not seeing where that is a benefit either for the government or for the individual or the groups that are actually getting that land back. It's a constant dilemma that when we uh, enter negotiations on land handback or land rights mm. or treaty, I know I'm getting away from architecture no. material flows, no, but they do actually combine um, about what ownership means. Ownership is a, is a, a really a recent imposition in human civilization, And I really do struggle with the concept of ownership. We are called traditional owners. 
because a government of the day cannot, mm. still cannot get their mental head around that you can use resources off the land and not own it, mm. and which is totally re reversed to how Aboriginal people think. And okay. I think that when we talk about this step change that we need to make, we have to get right away from that ownership. If you, if you, or if you do want to claim ownership to a bit of land, then you have to accept all the responsibilities that comes with that. So if it's good land and it, and it contributes to you know, the reduction of climate change, good, you've done the right thing. That means you have taken on your responsibilities. But if you're going to use that land and deplete it and deplete it and deplete it and contribute, then you can't dispose of it. You've taken on that responsibility, you've claimed ownership, and that means you've got to carry it for eternity and you cannot walk away from it. And too many people use that as their get out of jail, jail free card by selling off that land, it's no good to me. I'll go and destroy someone else's land. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think it's very powerful, the idea of responsibility in the sense that it's, it, it, what goes with responsibility is not a set of financial values, but a set of um, alternative values. And in that, you move from maybe transactional or economic values into these deeper structures. Um, but responsibility, yes, tot totally. Jane, have you got any thoughts on land from your, st your stories of geology and extraction? Um, um, I guess I'm just listening, actually. I just really <laughs> happy to hear what's being said. Um, and I think when you, when you asked the question, I was thinking about what it means, you know, where I am in a place where there are definitely call, I think, um, are definitely calls for return of land um, to indigenous communities, um, but you know, not that really, I don't think is, has moved very far. And even where I work, there's a, there's a call for a moratorium on development um, in this uh, tract of land. And so I guess it's just a, I think it's just a question of how we start to take those calls more seriously and what that means for for designers who are kind of you know going about business based on this on this system of property ownership that's a, kind of like taken for granted as the beginning of a project so so right now the kind of distance between that reality and the reality of a call to not develop without consultation is is somehow this enormous kind of elephant in the room that i i, I don't think is is like being really dealt with at this point um, I'm aware as time moves on, we could open it up um, to any questions. If there's some burning questions, I think there's some mics. Um, oh, we have one, yep. Hi, uh, Toby coming from Sustainability Victoria. Uh, <laughs> my question's for Indy, really. Um, I have just finished running a trial on retrofits for residential homes and I was interested to notice a bit of retrofit stuff in your presentation, but also your comment on preventative health, because I've basically started to see retrofits more as public health interventions than energy efficiency interventions. Just wondering if you've done any work looking at quantifying uh, health benefits from your retrofit projects. Yeah, so we're doing work both in Glasgow and Birmingham on this issue. Two, 
few big moves that we moved. We moved away from the house at the center of the retrofit to the street. And that was really critical. So what we've seen is, because the street as a unit, your theory of retrofit becomes as much about the street trees to the meadows on the front lawns, which reduce the temperature rise in summer, all the way through to, and your point about health. So what we're seeing is about 30, 33 to 40% can be done on energy savings. But actually, 50,000 pounds, so just to give you some numbers, um, 29 million homes in the UK expected energy, uh, retrofit cost about 50,000 pounds per house, which is about 1.45 trillion pounds to retrofit the UK. And that's pretty much required in terms of those numbers. You can get about 35% on energy. I think you end up looking at health, I think is really important. Indoor air quality, I did mention it. Largely, and that starts to make... <coughs> choices around how you allocate. So do you do a hydrogen boiler or do you do an air source heat pump with a biofilter, which changes the nature of the air quality as well as gives you the carbon reduction. And then you look at all the other solar energy grids and the air and the kind of um, um, uh, some of the insulation that you can do. So it's a combination, but you're absolutely right. Retrofit for it to work has to be seen as an integral solution of lots of different issues on the level of the on the level of community, and this is where what we're seeing in the UK certainly is calling for new public civic partnerships for deep retrofit, which means working with communities to do this as an integral transition all the way up. The processes of also doing it is really important. So when we did Nouveau Voisin, we got people, for example, people we help people remeadow their front lawns. Uh, which massively changes the quality of those environments. We did it by actually helping people, then people did biodiversity, citizen science, all the way through to looking at energy, uh, insect quality, all this sort of stuff. But you build the sense-making, sensing capacity of citizens, the sense-making capacity, then you start to slowly evolve back up. So the how of retrofit is as important as the what, but the integral solution is really critical. And the numbers means that you have to also start to look at, if you do a whole city retrofit, you have to look at the economic impacts of doing that retrofit story at a monetary level business model. I can go into more details, but you're absolutely right. I think this is the kind of level of in integral response that's required. And that's why I was talking about this scale of activity is going to be needed, but in a fundamentally different way. And I think we need a new type of democracy to do this work and the democracy of agency of empowering people. Sorry if I've gone on too long, but it's a really critical issue. And I think it really has to be done in a different way as well. While we see if anyone wants to make any other comments, is there any other questions that would coming up? Yes, you've got. Hi, it's Sheena Bowden. I'm really grateful for the way in which all the speakers have touched on the human dimension of our relationship with all the things, whether it's land or materiality. And I'm curious that I think what underpins it for me is that we struggle with our relationship to respect. Um, and I mean respect whether it's the Me Too movement or environment or ecology and thinking. And I wonder how each of you uh, consider why it is we might struggle with stopping and thinking about respect. I mean, if you're a musician, you don't just 
play the piece or dominate or own the piece, you consider the intention or the purpose. And I'm not coming from your world. I'm curious how you might think um, in all your ways of seeing the world about respect and what matters about it now. I've got a quite simple answer for that. You're asking about respect. I think for too long that we just expect rather than respect. We expect it to just be there. We've become this materialistic world where uh, what we think we want, we expect to be there. Mm. Rather than thinking that deeper, uh, as we have done today, of delving into where it actually comes from and what else we are affecting to actually achieve this automatically uh, that things are going to come to us faster and quicker and, and cheaper over time that we have forgotten and they are two words that are so closely sound similar respect and expect and expectations of humanity expectations that government's going to solve the problem or science is going to solve the problem we expect other people to solve the problem but we should actually respect uh, individual efforts uh, and respect our neighbour to respect their opinion and walk, as I said at the, at the welcome, is to walk country together, respect each other's knowledge systems that will sometimes challenge the norm of what we expect, to respect that there are ways of knowing and being and doing which has proven to be successful. Um, and respect the fact that it has a place, as it did in the past, but also has a, past, uh, has a place into the future, and it can be a, a, a stepping stone to get us to where we want to be. I'm not saying give up everything from the past and we only do what comes from modern science, but how you actually combine those two, respecting sometimes differing opinions, um, rather than walking in with a deciding that you must vote one way or the other. I hope that, I hope that clears. Thank you. So I think it's a really important question. It's rooted in lots of things. And the one, first thing I'd say, <clears throat> it's rooted in how we conceive ourselves. And, the root, and what do I mean by that? The reality is most of your DNA in your body is not human. You're a multitude of organisms that comes together to make you. In fact, your gut biome affects how you think and how you react. And, and even the idea of you as an individual, actually you're a plurality of personalities. It is more appropriate to call you they, them, we, than it is to talk about I. So then if you recognize that in your DNA you have the DNA of grass as much as other, like literally you have that DNA is accrued inside you, we start to realize the deep sense of entanglement to which we operate. The social brain means that I am not a function of my own intelligence, I'm a function of the social networks that I keep and who I engage with. When you start to reimagine your entanglement at a deep sense, when you start to say, I think we should all be using the pronoun we, they, them, because the reality that reflects our reality, that all of us exist on those spectrums. 
I think you start to engage in the world in a different way. And I think the illusion of individualism as a discrete, definable idea where you are separated from the world has allowed us to permit us to create violence with the things around us and the world around us. And this is actually a quite a profound transformation. The science is already there. It's not a science question anymore. It's a question of how we've constructed social imagination of how we see ourselves as discrete individuals. And that was done by Vitruvian Man and Leonardo da Vinci in the drawing of a man in a circle in a square. So the science is already there. We haven't built the culture for the transformation. This is why it's a cultural transformation that we're in the middle of, and in it is a new way. Once you see yourself as indivisible from reality, you have a foundational idea of respect and that respect becomes ingrained in your language, in your, in your processes. So I think at the heart of this story is a new cultural revolution. We want to make this transition, we have to build a cultural revolution of how we see the world. And that's always been the case. Leonardo da Vinci was drawing these things before we ended up Newtonian, Newtonian physics and other things which objectified Cartesian logics all came forth to take those ideas and manifest them in other forms of social imaginaries. So I think that the building respect, I think, requires us to recognize all these other things and embrace them in new ways. But I think you are fundamentally right. The question of respect is a really good totem pole for this sort of conversation. I think one more. So this person at the front. You wait for the mic. Hi, uh, thank you for this beautiful conversation. Thanks uh, for your beautiful project as well. But um, my question is related with the disconnection that we have between individuals, institutions, and uh, governance. How we can uh, create living cities if uh, we have this disconnection, which is a huge gap, and I have a little maybe silly example about, about this, but it's happening now in my local area. I live in Elgood. I'm very connected with nature and with the beach and with the forest. Um, and uh, I was one day running by, by the beach and I saw a, like a plastic, plastic balls by the beach and it was an art installation. So I was just running 10 days watching this installation. I didn't know what was it. And uh, until I asked to my community and they said, it's an art installation. So I, I was just a, a little bit upset because no one asked us why would we like an art installation that was made by an architect by the beach is temporary, is temporary, uh, but still is super disruptive with the environment. The colors are like very bright, and the people who live in Elgood love to be connected with the, just with the nature. The balls are created like to be like a seat to watch the ocean, but the people really don't like seats there because they like the grass. People walk barefoot all the time in the sand by running uh, around. Uh, the kids are, run, are running always uh, around the, the playground. And the, and the So the question is how we can fill the, the gap, how we can fill the gap between institutions and, um, and uh, communities and communities. 
because in the end we live sustainably and we think we are doing the right thing, but we don't take decisions. Someone has take it in our backyard. Any, any last comments to try and address that? Again, I try and simplify it, but as we come to the end of uh, this particular session, I know probably a lot of people need to get somewhere. Um, and it comes down to challenging who the decision makers are. It's as simple as that. Someone has made a decision who may have believed that they've gone through the proper consultation process because that's what they're trained. This is the steps that I've got to take. I've got to tick this box. Did I speak to that person? Yes. Did I do that? Yes. Did I do that? Yes. Did I do that? Well, I didn't quite do it, but I sort of did it. And obviously you're one person that wasn't consulted with and other members of your community weren't adequately consulted with. Uh, and someone has gone and made a decision regardless because there's been some sort of investment into it. And so it's got to go ahead anyway. And we've done 90% of what we need to do, so let's just make it happen. So challenge your decision makers. You know, uh, hold decision makers accountable. How we're going to do that in the future, I'm not quite sure. Last word. Just to be playful, maybe the architect or the artist was looking to provoke you. <laughs> 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 okay, just, I think... Just to be playful, I, I, because what, the real point I'm trying to get to in is what happens when you presume brilliance rather than presume crap? What happens if we presume that somebody else is trying to be brilliant in their own way? And I think too often we presume the worst of people, and I've found it much more powerful to presume the best and actually work with that energy. And I think, like one thing I want to say is, every one of you is more extraordinary than anything, any machine that's ever been built, any AI that's ever been built. Let's try to imagine the extraordinariness of every human being that's sitting here and every human being that ever existed. And in that, I think we can build the question of respect, but also build a new type of relationship to power, which isn't actually about presuming the worst, but actually let's demand and expect and presume the best. And I think there's something extraordinary in, in that journey, just to play with it that way. Thank you. Um, we've come to an end. We've probably gone a minute over too, actually. So, um, yeah, that, that, I, think, I think that was a pretty huge conversation and but really beautifully handled and answered by, by, by all of the speakers. So thank you for that. Thank you again for your wonderful contributions. Look forward to the afternoon. Thank you. You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast.